Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson, and you're listening to show number 84. So the advertising industry often tries to get us to buy things by associating their products with stuff we want, with stuff we desire, with traits we want. So, for example, Procter & Gamble will get us to buy Tide by associating it with being a good parent, specifically a good mother, taking care of our children. Uh, They'll get us to buy diamonds so that we can show commitment and love. They'll get us to buy certain types of beer to show that we're attractive and fun. And, you know, the list goes on and on from cars to clothes to food to pretty much everything. There's an attempt to link an entire holistic lifestyle to this one thing that we can buy. Because I might not be able to become, you know, hot and sexy, but I can buy Budweiser, which in my mind will do the same thing. So this has happened to the Mediterranean diet as well. The Mediterranean diet traditionally is one of the healthiest diets on the planet, a fact that's been known to researchers since right after World War II when Ansel Keys first took a look at the inhabitants of Crete. So fast forward 60 years, and what has happened is the Mediterranean diet has become a brand, and instead of trying to eat the way the Mediterranean people traditionally ate, we've been sold a couple of things that are supposed to give us all the benefits of the Mediterranean diet without actually eating the Mediterranean diet. And those things are, of course, olive oil, wine, and fish. And it's true that all three are consumed in a Mediterranean diet, but my guest today argues that the Mediterranean diet's success in keeping people healthy and living a long time comes in spite of those three elements rather than because of them. So today's guest, Juliana Hever, is a registered dietitian, the plant-based dietitian. She is the author of The Complete Idiot's Guide to Plant-Based Nutrition. She is a co-conspirator of Chef AJ in the uh, webcast The Chef and the Dietitian. And she's got a new book called The Vegetarian Diet, And what she does through her knowledge of nutrition and her knowledge of history is show us what the real Mediterranean diet consisted of and how to bring the delicious flavors of that diet into our lives without falling prey to the mistaken notion that simply adding half a cup of olive oil and a glass of red wine at dinner is going to give us those health benefits. So without further ado... Juliana Hever, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you, Howard. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you're you're um, of a very select group of, of repeat guests. So I think you're my you're Ooh. my second second timer. So this is uh, very exciting for me. Oh, I feel yeah. special. Thank you. Yeah, now now I get to call you a regular when I when I name drop. <laughs> I love it. So I'm honored. So you just uh, released a new book, and I'd like you to say the title because I've I've been having trouble saying it right. Oh, it's so fun to say, but it took me so many times to practice. Okay, ready? Yep. It's the vegetarian diet. Got it. So vegetarian. Exactly. Yeah, okay. it's a hybridization of vegan and Mediterranean. Awesome. So my first question is, why did you write this book? That's a good question. Well, okay. 
I am very passionate, as you know and as you are, about plant-based diets, and I've considered them the gold standard in the research, but everyone always seems to go back to these wonderful studies that are coming out on the Mediterranean diet, and they hold true. I mean, they're consistently coming out with new um, research on it, and it, it is consistent in the, in the literature to have a positive effect on minimizing chronic disease risk and improving, you know, quality of life longer. There's been a lot of wonderful studies to come out of the med. So my question was, well, why is that? How can we have both, you know, because you can't really, I didn't know, I wanted to really delve in and find out exactly what was it about the Mediterranean diet that makes it so successful. And I wanted to, of course, see how plant-based it was. And so I did this really deep, fascinating um, delve into the research from like, First from ancient Greece and, and then, you know, all the Ansel Keys stuff and then the big study in Crete by Leland Alba in the 50s. And I put it all together and I was like, okay, this makes perfect sense. And then the thesis of the book was born that the reason the Mediterranean diet is indeed so successful is because it is a whole food plant-based diet at its essence. Mm. So, so and, we'll, and we'll get into that, into, into the... Uh... The, the nutritional aspects of it because uh, that's your that's your gig right or, uh, a registered yeah. dietitian um, what was it about the Mediterranean that drew you personally was it was 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 it well, just that this stuff was in the news or do you have um, sort of you know personal fondnesses and affinities for the for the regions the people the cuisines yeah well clearly you've read the book because I'm passionate about all things Mediterranean I um I, I, you know, I, there's many countries that border the med. There was a conflicting evidence. It was like 18 or 25. There's like a whole bunch of countries. And so I, I admitted in the, you know, in the forward, or I mean, in the, in the introduction that I have this passion and, and, um, obsession with Italy, all things Italian. So I took it from the Italian angle just because of my love for Italy and Italian food and Italian culture. And so I used a lot of Italian language and plays on words and stuff throughout, they just peppered throughout the book. But indeed, of course, it, it does encompass, you know, the Middle Eastern countries, like, you know, and um, just a whole bunch of different countries. It wasn't just Italy. So I have a, I have this just, I've always studied, I studied Greek and Roman art and literature and drama. I was an actress. I was a Shakespearean actress. I played Juliet. And so I just, I've always loved everything Italian. I went there after uh, college. My parents took me and my sister as our, our finishing our college gift. And it was like the best trip of my life. I loved everything about Italy. And and I've been to the Mediterranean a couple times. Like I had to do a cruise. I had to do a cruise last year to speak on it for work for me. And that's when I actually wrote the the uh, the table of contents for this book because, you know, the food is so good. You know, I was in Greece and I was in uh, Turkey and I just fell in love with that kind of cuisine as well. So, so yes, I had a whole personal bias going in also, but it just kind of all perfectly came together where I got to incorporate the food and I got to play in the kitchen for a long time. It was a lot of work to modify the recipes and take out the oil and the, and the meats and all that. But uh, so I got to do the indulge in the food and in all the culture. And, and then, I, you know, I talked about Plato and Aristotle and I, it was just such an amazing, fascinating uh, study for me over the last year and a half. Mm, so, so, sounds like tough, but somebody had to do it, huh? <laughs> exactly. Yes. Cool. I think I think we need to, I think you need to go back and figure out whether it is 18 or 20 countries that border the Met. I think this requires uh, another trip or two to. 
to get, yeah, I to, like your thinking. To get, I your, do. to get those facts really nailed down. I should go to every one of those countries and count them up. I think that's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, that's what I keep saying is that I hope somehow this book gets me back there. That's my goal. Uh-huh. That was my deep goal. <laughs> well, when you when you were traveling there and doing the cruise, did I mean, did you have a chance to sort of, um, you know, meet with locals and, and get a sense of of their relationship to to the to their food? I did very little, not enough because it was a cruise ship. So we had like, you know, four days, uh-huh. really. And and one day it was totally raining and we had a tour. But one day when we went to Turkey, Ephesus, Turkey, and my I was with my mom. She was my date on this cruise. She, she was she was nice enough to come along with me and keep me company. But she's actually a really fun traveling buddy. So we so we went on we went to this restaurant and at first we were in the in the in the car going to this you know, going around, touring around. And the tour tour guide was like, oh, you'll never find anything vegan. There's forget it. Because we're trying to explain, you know, with the language barrier, you know, vegetables, no meat, no dairy. I'm trying to explain to him. And he's like, oh, good luck with that. So I found that the opposite was true. It was beyond easy to find these meals that were, you know, and I mean, like my plate was stacked really high with delicious options, like so many different foods at every restaurant. But in particular, when we went to Ephesus and we found this amazing restaurant that was like hidden and, you know, we sat outside by this creek, but the guy who welcomed us in and I was trying to explain to him vegan, you know, vegetarian, oh, oh, let me get mama, mama. It was like called mama's kitchen. And he goes and gets his mom who she's the chef and it's her kitchen. And, and she was so excited and she's like, oh, and she takes me to the big buffet and she's like, you could have this and this and this. And she's pointing out everything. And me and my mom, it was like one of the best meals I've ever had. It was just incredible. And so she even had a cookbook there. So I bought her cookbook and I actually took some of those recipes and and modified them and, and incorporated them into the book. So I got to talk to them in a little bit. You know, obviously there's a language barrier, but it was kind of fun to see how the locals eat. So I was eating with the locals every time when we were on land those four days. And the food was just extraordinary. Mm. So one one thing I'm wondering is that there there's a tendency that I've seen in sort of the the food community, people who care about food issues, whether it's, you know, plant based people or vegans or paleo or Atkins or whatever to to want to create distinctions and to create hierarchies that this is better than that and that's better than the other thing. And, and I see in your book and a couple others recently a real sort of both and approach. And I you know, I love the title because it's a it's a fun sort of play on words between vegan and Mediterranean. But was there was there something about that in particular that drew you to it to kind of create a, a synthesis to say we don't have to fight about whether the vegan diet or the Mediterranean diet is the healthiest one? Absolutely. I mean, the whole essence of the book, the whole essence of everything I do work-wise with lectures, with with writing, I'm always trying to open up the gates and welcome everyone in because really I just want more people eating more plants and fewer or no animal products and and processed foods. And that's that's that reaches beyond that reaches into all the healthy diets. If you look at all the healthy diets, you know, everyone can agree that we need to eat more fruits and vegetables. Everyone can agree that animal products are not health promoting. There's just like really no arguments if you look at it from a really broad, unbiased perspective. And it's it's just like when people try to get niche like paleo and all that, where it's like, no, you have to have this and it's grass fed and blah, blah, blah. 
that's when I think we get into this exclusivity and people are a turned off, b intimidated, c um, they delve in and then either you know are sucked into it and that becomes what they define themselves as. But really, ultimately, from a health perspective, there are so many ways. It is very it is very open and it, it doesn't have to be exclusive. But of course, one of my main arguments in this book is the and the main difference between the Mediterranean classically and the vegetarian is that we have, you know, environmental and ethical considerations that we have to face now in 2015 that we can no longer ignore in order for us to, you know, to survive. And I bring in those arguments because, you know, people could argue, yeah, we eat grass feed, grass fed beef. And if you have a small dose of that, then you could still be healthy. But really, we, we, we can't do that for other reasons other than our health in addition, in addition to our health. So, um, so with wanting to be all encompassing and open, I still, I still want people to be aware of all the other issues that are associated with what we eat. Well, I, I, I guess one of the big themes of the book is uh, look at things holistically. And so when you, you talk, you don't just talk about the vegetarian diet. You talk about the whole, you know, the Mediterranean lifestyle that includes fresh air, exercise, being outside, uh, taking your time and enjoying meals and making each one a, a festive occasion. You're, you're not just telling us live our crazy Western lives and just eat from this you know, from this column of food and everything will be fine, right? Exactly. It's absolutely holistic. And, you know, and I understand, believe me, I'm, I live in the middle of crazy Los Angeles. I've got two kids. I work full time. I understand how it's not possible to have, you know, family meals three times a day and to really like cook everything from scratch. Like I wish we all could. And I, obviously that is ideal. And that is a part of why the research is so strong in the Mediterranean. But, but, that being said, I think we could all try a little bit of, you know, I, I introduce a lot of different ways to incorporate some of those habits into our lives and integrate them, even though despite our crazy schedules and our hectic lifestyles, it is possible to implement mindfulness and to schedule in exercise because it is so important. And, and all of those things come into play for optimal health and for, you know, for everything. Like if you really want to have a quality of life, everything matters. I think diet is number one, most important, but like you said, you can't just fix, you know, eat these foods and everything's going to be perfect because how you eat them and what else you do around your life is very important as well. And that's, you know, like one of my favorite books is the blue zones. Mm -hmm. And it talks all about that, about how, you know, the, the, the most, the, the, the regions with the most centenarians around the world, they do all have in common these, these certain factors, these, you know, social, uh, socialization, you know, strong social, um, and both sense of belonging. They have, you know, they do eat plant centered diets. They do, you know, they try to, they eat in a calm environment. They do stuff. That's a lot of movement and activity they're, They don't, they're not sedentary. They're just certain things that around the world are kind of like almost universal law for, for being healthy. And so I try to incorporate ways to, to implement those things, despite, you know, our common technology and crazy schedules and, you know, life at a desk, just lifestyles that we've, we've turned into in the, in modern day. Right. Well, yeah, as I'm thinking, as I'm listening to you, I'm, it reminds me a little bit about um, the idea of keeping kosher. So I, I grew up in a, in a Jewish home. We didn't keep kosher, but I knew a lot of people who did. So I was able to sort of look at it as 
a, you know, a sort of a cultural artifact that I wasn't wedded to. And what I saw is that those, those kind of rules um, actually tended to create the community around them. When you took your food seriously, then you had to create community that was able to support it. You had to have enough people living together that you could have, you know, your kosher butcher. You, um, you know, you'd have meals together. Certain certain types of like the, the demands of the food created a certain culture. And I'm thinking that for for people who are serious about being plant based, it's hard. For, you know, it's possible. But most people who are plant based at some point start cooking for themselves, start doing some of the things that you talk about in the uh, in the chapter on sort of, you know, nuts and bolts of like stocking the pantry. That there's something about taking on the food that that can tend to um, spread out and and kind of colonize other areas of our lives. Absolutely. No, it, it is. It's, it's really kind of a beautiful thing. If you think about it, I like the synergy. I talk a lot about synergy in there. And and I bring up, of course, your book a lot because, uh, based on the whole synergistic principles. But but there's synergy not in within just our food and nutrients There's synergy within our communities and our relationship to nature and the food that we eat. And there's just such a broader perspective from a synergistic viewpoint that I, I love. Like, I love that. Yeah, it's like we are what we eat and who we are has to do with who we are around and how we live our lives and how we connect with other people. So one, one of the things that really struck me, the, the section on synergy, you have a whole page on sofrito, right? Yes. So t first, tell us what sofrito is. Okay, sofrito is basically a classic. Uh, it's kind of like a marinara sauce. And, and it's classic to Spain or Italy, is it Italy or Spain? I'm blanking on it, but it's it's like it's like a marinara sauce. And what's so cool about it is that uh, I, I use it as an, as an example because there's so many wonderful things within the ingredient, the standard ingredients that work together to make it really healthy. Like you know, like the carotenoids are cooked, like it's a cooked tomato, and that the cooked tomatoes are very powerful antioxidants, right? And protect against prostate cancer and all that. And so the heat of it ha does does that. And then you've got the um, different nutrients in there. What what else is in there? There's something, is there something green in there? There's something with iron in there that is brought about by the vitamin C in the tomatoes. And they're just all these wonderful synergistic principles within just this one classic sauce that everyone puts on their spaghetti. <laughs> you know, and it's just kind of something that's been we all use it in in different in different recipes, uh, different versions of it. But there's also like the fat in the um, they use in olive oil. But I made an oil free version with I used olives. But the olive oil, the fat in there, um, synergizes to help absorb those carotenoids even better too. So it's like all these different things within one simple sauce uh, is a synergy example. Right. And, and, and you'd imagine that every traditional society that's been around for thousands and thousands of years has stumbled upon ways to make their food optimally healthy. That, you know, that, that I would trust a tradition that old before I would trust, you know, Kellogg's spraying pills on breakfast cereal. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. And I don't even think that was the intention to provide the optimal nutrition is just like the way we always cook. And that's my big argument, too. I really my my ultimate overarching goal for this book was to put nutrition and diet into historical and global context. And that's why I went back to ancient Greece and Rome and talked about 
how, you know, there are these principles were started then, you know, let thy food be thy medicine, thy medicine be thy food. That's an old, old, you know, Hippocratic statement where people were connecting food and and health. And then, of course, I talk about the whole history of how cardiovascular disease came to be seen as something that can be uh, moderated or, or some kind of kind of correlated to our diets. And it's fascinating to watch how that emerged. And I document that Actually, I documented it in great detail and they cut a lot of it out because I guess it's kind of boring for some people. I, I love that stuff. But historically, it was very interesting the way we've came to understand our relationship between nutrition and health. And it's so funny because even now in 2015, there are so many physicians that don't know about this or don't accept the fact that nutrition is that powerful and it really can be medicinal. But in fact, we've been talking about that since the beginning of time. So it's it's interesting. So the, the thing that really struck me about the sofrito, aside from the it's a great example of a synergistic, holistic uh, food that's that serves on so many purposes. But what really struck me was that it had olive oil in it. And you have you have a really interesting, nuanced take on oil in this book. You you present a fair amount of information that would seem to suggest that certain types of oils, olive oil, uh, in particular, may be okay for some people in some circumstances. And you also caution against sort of adding it willy-nilly and better to have it as a whole food. And your recipes don't have oil. Can you talk a little bit about where where you landed? Because you did write in the book that it was the most complicated thing to write about. Yeah, I think everyone was laughing at me like, oh, right, you're going to take the olive oil out of the Mediterranean. What are you, crazy? Like, that's that's ridiculous. It is the Medi- It's synonymous with the Mediterranean diet. And I, I went in there, honestly, very open-minded because I've always taught, you know, oil-free uh, cooking and, and eating because with my clients and over the last few years, I've seen the less oil people consume, the easier it is to maintain weight for a lot of people. But um, so I, I, I went in there with that bias, but I said, you know what, why, maybe that is why the Mediterranean diet is so successful. Let me look. And boy, did I look. And it was great because Dr. Gregor, Michael Gregor, who I just, you know, adore, he's the walking encyclopedia. He gave me a whole bunch of articles on this too. So I was, I had so much to look at and I really wanted to be objective. I really, because I knew if I was going to claim that you don't need the olive oil, I needed to defend why and I needed to really have that answer. But I wasn't going in there saying, oh, I'm going to figure out why it's not good. I'm going to figure out if it really is necessary. And when I really dug in, and what I really, I, and when I incorporate what I've, I've learned from elsewhere and from with my clients and from other research, I found that perhaps the Mediterranean diet is successful in spite of the olive oil, not because of it. And that is one of the, the three myths that I debunk on the Mediterranean diet. And my biggest argument goes back to that. And, and it looks like it, like, so there's certain people that, even if you look at the older, the older studies where they were consuming olive oil, they were still consuming a lot fewer calories than we consume now. And they needed more calories. Cause like in Crete, for example, with that original study, they didn't have enough food. It was a, it was just a war torn country or, uh, um, yeah. And it was like, they were just coming out of, you know, world war two. And, you know, there was a, it was just, it got really shredded in the war and they, it was very hard for this population it was going through a lot of struggles to get food on the table and olive oil. They had olive trees and everything. And it was easy. It was an easy source of calories for them. But now fast forward to nowadays, we have the opposite problem. We have too many calories going in and we're, we're trying to figure out how to modify the amount of caloric intake that the majority of the population is taking in, which is why one out of three people in the world are overweight or obese and two out of three in America are overweight or obese. So clearly we do not need to get more calories in. 
With that being said, there are certain populations like those that are, you know, trying to gain weight or those that are athletes that are burning thousands of calories that could get away with having it. And they have really good cholesterol levels. They can get away with having some oil. But the majority of people are trying to lose weight or at least maintain their weight or trying to lower their blood cholesterol levels. And for them, the olive oil is absolutely unnecessary. It is a processed food. If you can go to the original olives, and I have a chart in there comparing nutritionally the difference between the intact olive and the olive oil, and you see that you're just basically removing fiber and a bulk of nutrients and, and adding it, and it's just pure fat. And we just don't need that much fat, the majority of the population. So that was that was my conclusion. And so I decided to stick with what I do anyway, and I did all of my recipes completely oil-free. Yeah, and I, and I love the, the nuance in there in that, you know, each of us has to look at our own lives in context, that we don't just we don't just say, oh, those people in Crete eat this way, so we should too, or, right, so that we're, we're not just copying blindly, you know, what, I don't know if your your kids ever liked the uh, Amelia Bedelia books, these were, those oh, were I did. <laughs> big, big favorites in my household, where Amelia Bedelia just takes everything literally. And the way we in America, we hop on diet bandwagons, we see, oh, they, oh this group in the Caucasus Mountains lives to 102. <laughs> and they happen to eat yak yogurt. So let's all go out and buy Dannon. <laughs> right, that, that right, I, you know, right, exactly. I love that you create you create context that we can we can make decisions based on our own situation and our own goals. And it's so there's a way in which olive oil is natural. And there's a way in which in, in our society, for most people, it's an unnatural thing to add. Exactly. I think I, I, I always recommend going individualized and really looking at what works for you, because for some people, they can totally get away with having oil. And, you know, it's not worth it to fight that everyone needs one way of being because it's just not true. It's just not true. I mean, we have overarching principles like the fact that, you know, if you're eating lots of whole plant foods and you, you're getting all of your nutrients and you're going to do better you know, or you might do better, at least you have a fighting chance. But um, but and if you exercise regularly and, you know, the, the basic principles. But within those confines are a lot of is a lot of wiggle room for certain individuals. Like if you don't like kale, you can still survive like things like that, you know. Or if you know if you're really have low cholesterol and are underweight, or you're fine with your weight, and you like to have olive oil and everything, then hey, people did fine like that. And as long as you maintain an ideal body weight, then you have a good fighting chance for optimal health. That's like a, another big principle is is to to get to a healthy weight and stay there because that that does determine risk for chronic disease as well. And I just think oil is such an easy way to cut out hundreds or thousands of calories that it's just such a, it's a no brainer for most people. I mean, it, it's harder to, you have to relearn how to cook a little bit and it's hard to eat out, but the idea or the accepting of that fact that it's so beneficial is, is pretty simple. Right. And, and when you look at just, you know, expand on the idea of oil as energy and look at the way we use energy now. So I spent a year when I was 20, I spent a year in Jerusalem and I lived near um, Mount Gethsemane, which is, you know, quite well known um, in uh, Christian circles as, a, you know, the place where uh, I think Jesus was uh, was captured by by the Romans. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot of pilgrimage there. It turns out that Gethsemane is Greek for two Hebrew words, Gat Shemen, which means um, oil press. And there's all these olive trees there. And I went to visit the oil press. And it was these two giant stones, circular, circular stones, one on top of the other. And it was 
you know, drawn by oxen. And you know how little olive oil they would get for the amount of energy they put in? Like this stuff was precious. Right. Like, you know, if you if you had a bit of olive oil, it was like like a celebration. Like, you know, that's why it was, right. it was so it was so important to the diet. It's not because, you know, this is the same reason that sort of meat became important to the diet. It was like, you know, the celebratory hunt um, was, was a, was a special occasion. It wasn't what you had every single day. That is such an interesting perspective. I love that. That's so true. I mean, and then think about all that waste of all the olive, all the all the good stuff that they're just throwing away just to get that precious olive oil. If you think about it, energy wise, it's just not efficient. That's a great, great addition. I wish I thought of that to put in the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think I think it was related to the um, you know the way you could keep the you know it was it was you, you you took your olives and of course you you pickled or brined them to to have them last. And, you know, the ones that were too young for that, you could turn into oil. Like it was a very efficient way of, of, of harvesting the resources from that, that land. And, when, you know, there's, there's certainly lush areas of the Mediterranean, but a lot of the Mediterranean is, you know, you, you look at it and you say, well, how can they grow anything there? These, these very hilly, rocky, like olive trees are one of the things that, right. that really do well there. Right. No, and, it's true. It's true. It's very interesting, the, the climate. You know, and for for us to drink all this olive oil because it's healthy is is like you know well, I, I I get my water from Fiji because you know because right. who doesn't want water from twelve thousand miles away right no right and and I mean that's another element that adds to the whole argument of of thinking about where our food is coming from we're so detached nowadays you know we don't know where our food like if you get like if you look at a happy meal or whatever, like who know you can't even imagine where half of those ingredients started from and you know and, and how they ended up on your in your paper wrapper, like it's just, it's such a, people don't think about it. We don't, we're just, we don't need to think about it. We can absolutely easily get through our lives without knowing where our food comes from, but how beautiful to know where our food comes from and actually start thinking about it again. And I think it makes you appreciate food more and appreciate nature and your body more. I think it's a wonderful kind of, a wonderful thing to in, to adopt another principle that we should kind of start teaching our children. I mean, I know I, I try to emphasize that with my kids and it's, it's hard and urban society, but I think that's an important lost art. Mm. We, had, we, had, we had a bit of fun over the holidays. One of, one of our family holiday gifts was a, a mushroom growing kit. And it was just oh. this, this sort of block of something and it had the oyster mushroom spores in it. So, you know, my son took it, took it out of the box and just, you know, wet it every day. And it grew like, you know, a quarter pound of oyster mushrooms. And like, you know, How cool. I'll, I'll, I'll never look at oyster mushrooms again the same way because yeah. now and you're still, right? it's like now I, I kind of have an intimacy with them. Like I know a little bit and obviously it was, you know, a package. It wasn't from from the wild, but it was, it was one step closer to understanding something about my food. That is so cool. I think that's so good for your kids. I, I, I tried gardening with my kids a few times, but I'm just not. I'm just so I'm, I'm never around enough and I live in a really bad climate to to um, grow things. But I, I they were so excited about it. And when you when you could see something and grow it and then eat it, there's just such a, a new connection that we, we we don't normally have anymore. Most of us don't. I mean, a lot of people still do. Um, but I know here in Los Angeles, it's not very common. Yeah, no. And still, you know, even when you know exactly how it works, if you keep a sense of wonder about it, You'll go out in the field that you sowed or the, you know, the garden plot or the, the paper cup in the windowsill and you see that thing come up. It's a miracle. Like it seems so, it is. so unlikely. 
It is. It's so it's so cool. I agree. I love that. It's beautiful. You know, and and so I guess a lot, you know, a lot of the Mediterranean society is still very much aware. Like they, you know, they have to grow their own food. They have to put in the work. That that it's it's not a given. Like we have we have a real like. I think it's a false sense, but we certainly have a sense of food security as a society, that food is always there. You just go to the supermarket, and the only time we get nervous is when there's a big storm and everyone's like, you know, bread, bread and eggs and milk, bread, bread and eggs. But basically, we, we feel like, you know, the supermarket with its tins and boxes and cans and packages has everything we need and there's nothing to worry about. And I think there's something a little bit invigorating about living close enough to your food supply to worry about it. That's true. It's uh, yeah, that is so true. And it's sad. You know, I've I've worked in places where they're in the middle of a food desert and, you know, the closest thing they have are fast food places and that's all they have access to. And I, I think that's so tragic because you're right. If, I love that whole movement right now to do the neighborhood gardens, you know, where they're doing the community. I think it's called community gardens where people are participating and if people are, you know, building up these gardens in the middle of those food deserts and, and making you know, that connection to food and having access to actual healthy food. And I, I hope, I really hope that continues and builds and especially in those neighborhoods that, that don't have access like, like a lot of us do. Right. And I think your, your, your book is part of the movement to reconnect people with their food heritage. Cause there's nobody on this planet who doesn't come from a healthy food heritage. If you, if you, right. if you go back three generations, if you go back to 1945, there was no, you know, there was no such thing as an unhealthy food society. The unhealthy people well, were, were I'd either. Argue, I'd so, have to argue like Eastern Europe, which is my roots. I mean, they and even if you look at the seven country study, they're the ones that did the worst. <laughs> so, OK, maybe we have to go back. But you know what? I'll, I'll argue right back with you that the the peasantry ate pretty well. Right. Cabbage, ca uh, carrots, cabbage, potatoes. Um, yes. And true, tiny true. bits of, you know, schmaltz. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, but you know, when, when we when we come over to this country, what we what we tend to take, what we what we again, looks like the olives. What we end up um, really longing for are those very special foods that you could get. You know, the, on Friday afternoon, the Jews would get something a little special. They get a small piece of salmon. They get you know a, a, a little chicken liver, something that they exactly. would not be able to exactly. afford. And those are the foods we now celebrate as our cultural heritage. Right. You, you oh, know. that's a big part of my book, too, is that is that that we when we had meat throughout every time until the, you know, the last 50, 60 years, it was so small because it was it was special and it was like the the royalty had it and the, you know, the, the most affluent people were able to afford that because it was it was not like meat was not commodifiable as it is now or, you know, three meals a day as a hunk of meat on your plate. Like that was never like that. It was never the case, which is part of the argument that the Mediterranean diet is healthy because it was plant-based because the majority of the calories were coming from plants. So you're right. Exactly. Around the world, around the world. Right. So, you know, I've talked about this with uh, Chef Bryant Terry, who, who wrote, you know, Afro-Vegan um, around the same, you know, the African-American community. If you go back two generations, there was a farmer. There was there were, and there was greens and, you know, sweet potatoes and fruit um, and, you know, every, every cultural heritage has has a place to be proud of that is really health promoting. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, we have we have no 
food culture in America. I've been talking about that recently. Wanting to, you know, make it into we need to develop a food culture because we don't we're so it's so we're it's nice to have this diversity and everything, but we don't have a culture around food itself like in the United States. You know, it's there's some little, you know, sparkles like if you go to the south, you get southern cuisine or if you, you know, but really it's just this wonderful hodgepodge of different diverse cultures throughout our food uh, around the country, but it would be so nice to have culture around eating and going back to connecting to nature and making our food and all of that. I think I wish that we could start teaching that in our school system and, you know, at least parent to child, but, you know, generationally, because we just, we've lost that connection. And I think that that would make such a difference in our, in our children's lives and in the future of our our healthcare. Hmm. What do you think that would look like? A food, a food, an American food culture. Right. I'm not, it's funny because I've been working on trying to define that. And I think it would look like something where you're learning about gardening and you're learning about, you know, I really do think we, we need to connect back with nature somehow. And I'm, I sound so hippy dippy and I, and I, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm so LA urban, but I feel this need. I think we all need to remember where, you know, our earth and where where food comes from and how it how it's grown and our children need to see that and experience that and I'm sure I know a lot of people do but a lot of people on the other hand don't so I think that would be part of it is is incorporating teaching where food comes from how to garden how to make food how you know grains are made like just to have a deeper discussion about food within our educational system starting at the beginning instead of just being you know food industry supported like we definitely get tons of education on how important dairy is for our bones starting in preschool and that's just because it's 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 funded by the industry right so we we're that's the only food only nutrition information we really get as children and i think that we need to start learning about nutrition because it's so important. It's a it's a matter of us being cognizant in school, you know, and all this like ADD and ADHD and all of this stuff now because we're just eat our our kids are eating so poorly. I think it's so important from a, a cognitive and a health grow you know growth and you know just a minimization of this crazy rampant chronic disease. If we could start it young, it would be hugely empowering. Mm. As you're talking, it suddenly, it suddenly occurred to me, so I'm, I'm about to take this podcast into PG-13 territory. But <laughs> when, when I was in graduate school studying health education, uh, one of the things I thought I wanted to be was a sex educator. And I was really turned off at the way sex education was being taught and that it was being taught in terms of um, reductionism. It was, you know, how do you avoid diseases? How do you avoid right. pregnancy? It was all, it was all, it was just like, you know, how do you not get heart disease? How do you, um, you know, what's, what's, how much cal- calcium do you need and where do you get calcium? And there was, there was nothing about pleasure. <laughs> and I think the way, you know, the way we teach food is we, we don't think of it as pleasurable. How could you, you know, how could we have a, a pleasurable food culture and we're eating 7-Eleven, you know, um, f- hot dogs in the car because we can eat them one handed? Right. right. That's such a good point that we need. We need, you know, if we want to change the way people um, re- respond to food, we can't just keep beating them over the head with health fa- health facts. We have to we have to make them understand that they're, they're missing out on pleasure. I love that. I mean, and you could. What about bringing back cooking to school? You know, kids don't be we don't learn how to cook and it doesn't have to be just I think it shouldn't be just the girls. I think everyone should learn how to cook like we should have food prep courses. And I mean, it's just like lifestyle. Like I wish I really wanted to transform everything in the education system. I love that too. You're right about sex education because it became such a horrible taboo 
scary topic that you're like scared. You have to sign your parents have to sign a waiver that you could learn about your body. It's like, what? <laughs> That's just how my body is. And I should be ashamed of it. It's starting. You're right. That's such a good point. But what about yeah, changing that and changing and changing the way we talk about learning about food, learning about business? I mean, nobody knows how to get out of school and make a living. And, you know, now it's it's so hard with the job market and everything's changing in that regard, too. So, I mean, we really need to step up how we teach our children. And and I mean, I don't even know how that it's so bureaucratic and deep and, and, and sewn together. It's like I can't imagine penetrating that market and trying to, like, make some of those broad changes. I guess that's why there's such a big movement for homeschooling nowadays. Right. I was going to say, we, yeah, we, we, we dropped out of the system a number of years ago. And then, that you was, know, and then that it, was very it was. And so now my son has to take these um, standardized tests. So it's kind of fun to look at, like for math, like the gap between like what he needs to know to function in the world and what he needs to know for this test. Like, you know, so we have to go uh -huh. over like you know, isosceles triangles. Like when was the last time, you know, <laughs> the, 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 um, you know, the, the properties of an isosceles triangle were important in your life. Right. Never. A absolutely <laughs> never. Right. I mean, unless you're, you know, an architect or an engineer where it doesn't matter, but then that would be something more specialized, right? If we could broaden it out to be more life oriented, that would be so extraordinary. Right. So let's let's give some people some home ec um, right now. So one, <laughs> one of the sections of the book that I that I liked the best was, of course, the recipes. So you have um, a, a ton of great recipes in there and they, they come with a, an amazing pedigree. Right. You just didn't sort of pick stuff off the Internet. No. Yeah, no. I had, it was the hardest thing I ever did. I, I always I always have to remind everyone that I'm not a chef because it is so much harder for me to get in the kitchen and really figure out what I'm doing because I don't really know what I'm doing. I just kind of play in the kitchen. But I wanted, it was very challenging to take the olive oil out and the animal products of classic recipes. But I was on a mission. I was going to do it. And like there were certain ones that were really challenging, like the falafel, because I love falafel, but I didn't want all the, it's a deep fried. Traditionally, it's deep fried. Mm -hmm. And and it's hard to make it stick and not burn without the oil. So that went through many generations of of, of test runs. But yeah, they're all they're all traditional. So mo a lot of uh, Mediterranean, like Middle Eastern style dishes. Because I did, I spent a couple sessions with my ex mother in law in the kitchen, kind of doing, um, you know, like taking some of her classic recipes that she because she's from Egypt, and so we would we would kind of take some of her, she's a really good cook. And so, you know, I would, I would watch her and she doesn't measure and I, I'm not good at measuring either. So she would just throw a little there, but I would force her. I'm like, here, no, no, measure this, measure this. And we we're measuring together. And I was trying to document everything. And because, and then she, you know, of course uses olive oil all the time. And, and so it was very challenging for her to think in my constrict, you know, I was very const, uh, restrictive to her, and it was, but it was so fun because she's such a magician in the kitchen. So it was really fun to kind of apply my crazy principles and see how we came up with stuff together. So it was a really cool uh, experience. We got a, a few recipes together. She came, she's the one that mastered, which I think was insane. I would have never done this on my own, the, the dolmas and the stuffed cabbage and the stuffed, um, what's the other one? There's another stuffed, the three stuffed ones that were so, they're so challenging to make, but she, oh my gosh, she's such a master with flavor that it, it didn't miss, you won't miss the olive oil at all. It, she's so good. And dolmas is stuffed grape leaves, right? Yes, yes, yes. I, I, I need to do that because I, I, that's one of my big addictions. And I just, I try to pretend that the stuff they're drenched in isn't oil. Right, right. <laughs> 
Like, well, I'll tell you, it's not easy. It's not an easy recipe. This is not an, this is not something I do every week. Like this is uh, like we're having a special occasion type of recipe. But um, I have, you know, there's the other. So I did. There's a few of those. Only a few of those because I don't like difficult recipes. I don't have time for them as a busy mom. So I the majority of the recipes are very simple ones like chili. Like I have this chili that I make every week in that book. And I oh, and one of my favorite recipes that that we both that I worked on also with her was the baked oat bread. So I found a, I made a gluten-free, oil-free, vegan bread with so it was really challenging because, you know, working with yeast, I'm not I'm not good at that and it's such a chemistry experiment, but we finally got it down. It was like we were we were jumping up and down. We were so excited after like the 10th try and it so I was excited to have a bread cuz I'm gluten-free and it's hard to find a healthy gluten-free bread. Uh-huh. So I was excited about that one. <laughs> cool. So, so how has your cooking changed, or what have you added, or you know, shifted since you got into vegetarian? Well, I—that's the thing. I've always kind of made this type of food. Like I've always gravitated towards this type of food anyway. So, like I'm a, I'm a hummusaholic. Love anything with hummus. So I have like two hum, two or three hummuses. I think two hummuses in there. And um, I mean, that's just I, I've incorporated some of these new recipes just. Or I just kind of modified stuff that I've always made traditionally. Like I just kind of gravitate towards this type of food anyway. And uh, but I've been like, there's a couple recipes in there that I make every like I make that hummus, the hummus of the earth I called it because it's very earthy. But I make that I have that in my fridge all the time, and I make that the hearty red lentil chili all the time. And there's a few soups in there. But my whole idea was that I wanted everything to be simple, and it was fun. I was worried I wasn't going to have enough recipes because it was so much. It was so hard for me, and I was also trying to you know do the, all the writing and history. And it was a lot. This was a big. This was a big passion project for me. This took a lot of work, but um, so I was worried I wasn't going to have enough recipes. So I was so lucky because I was able to engage Chad Sarno and Robin Robertson. They gave me a few recipes too, so I have some of their amazing, um, you know, some of their beautiful work inside the recipe section as well. So we ended up with a total of sixty-six recipes, which I didn't expect. So that was exciting. Wow. So any um, any spices or anything that you have come to to like and appreciate that you maybe didn't use so much before? Yeah, that's a good question. Yes, yes, there is. I'm in love with my favorite spice now is smoked paprika. Ah. And I put that together with chipotle and with um, cumin a lot. And we use a lot of turmeric. There's a lot of, which is also very healthful. All the spices are healthy, but turmeric is kind of popular these days. And so there's a lot of turmeric in everything, which adds a lot of flavor and color and health properties. So there is a lot of those. Those are like the biggest ones that we use kind of in everything. And a lot of uh, chili, uh, chili pepper flakes and... Uh, but those are those are the classic, and then of, or of course there's always onion and garlic, and I have an intolerance to onion and garlic, so I always had to test them without, and with. So it was kind of that was challenging too, because I know a lot of people love the onion and garlic, and that's very standard staple in in Mediterranean cooking. Um, but so you know, anyone by the way, if anyone's listening and you like more, you might want to add more, because <laughs> I kind of went on the lower end. I gave a broad range for the garlic always, but uh, I'm not a good tester for that part. Right, like like for me, the phrase "too much garlic" doesn't doesn't make sense. You know, I'll, yeah, I'll just cock my yeah, head yeah. like a puppy, like, huh? What does that even mean? <laughs> I, yeah, a lot of people are like that. I understand. It's good. I love it. So let's let's um, tackle myth number two, which is uh, wine. 
Uh, wine. Okay. Well, I do have a bias. I do love wine. So, I, but I know that you're only supposed to have one glass for women maximum a day and two glasses, or I should say servings per day for men. And that's just to avoid cancer and all that stuff. So the myth is that the red wine, like the olive oil is, is the reason for the success of the Mediterranean diet. But really, it's just what I, when you look at it, it really is just another way to get phytochemicals into the diet. And you're just as fine doing, you know, grapes, <laughs> the intact grapes. It's kind of like the grapes, the wine is to grapes what the olive oil is to the olive. And it's just, you know, but, you know, there are some studies showing that alcohol, because it's relaxing, can be cardioprotective, but that's in the small doses. So, I was trying to be very, very cautious with my wording here because I don't want people to be encouraged, like I'm encouraging alcohol consumption because I don't, I'm not. But I am saying that if you are going to do it, of course, don't be pregnant or driving or, you know, with liver disease or any of those things and, you know, drink responsibly. I kept saying that. But uh, but it's on the tip of my pyramid on the top because it's an optional. It is part of the Mediterranean traditional diet and you can incorporate it in those small doses. And does it, it does it make or break the diet? I don't think so at all. And, and I, I, I love that approach because there's, you know, I see so many approaches to uh, to dietary excellence that are sort of hard lines in the sand. Like, you know, you, you do this and you're going to hell. Um, right, right, right. And I think there, you know, there are communities uh, for whom that is appropriate. People who have had a serious, you know, cardiovascular event people who are addicted. Obviously, you know, you mentioned that people who are alcoholics shouldn't be having wine. Um, people who are food addicts shouldn't even have tiny bits. But for, for most people, learning to live in you know, true moderation, not, not what our culture calls moderation, but, but not having hard and fast lines, but having just excellent patterns um, is, right. is really important. I think that's that's one of the takeaways I'm getting from from the vegetarian diet is that this is an overall pattern. It's not a uh, a rigid set of rules. Exactly. That that is what I really want the takeaway to be is that it doesn't have to be perfect. Nobody has to be perfect to be healthy and to have this lifestyle. It's just it's just make it your own and make it what works for you because. That's what you'll. That's when you'll do it. It's not when it's something rigid and and lines drawn in the sand that's going to be exciting to people. It's going to be like, oh gosh, I have to give up this and I can't do that. No, you know, just try to do as much of this as you can and make it work for you. That's really important. Right. Um, any other um, recipes, uh, names of dishes you want to just wet, wet our appetites with? Anything else that you uh, are, you know, the, of the sixty six that have. Are real favorites of yours or other people have said they love yeah well one, another one that i've kind of become i have also once a week are these a uh, cheesy smoky butternut squash pasta it's like this it's like a it's like a nacho cheese like really warm um mac and cheese but spicy so i love that and i love i i love the shakshuka it's it's basically like a middle eastern tofu scramble it would be like eggs they normally make it with eggs but this is with tofu and just a lot of mediterranean vegetables so i love that for breakfast and I'm flipping through, I'm flipping through to remember um, the ones that I don't make that often. Mujadara is kind of like a very classic vegan dish. You know, it's, it's like the, it's just lentils and rice baked. But my mother-in-law added this amazing garnish that was to die for with like orange and cinnamon and onion that she, she fried up at the end and threw it on top. I was like blown away. I've never seen that before. 
Uh, and then I love the polenta with mushroom ragu because I love mushrooms. I got to try making my mushrooms like you did. But there, but then there's there's like three of them that are hard to make, like the moussaka and the stuffed vegetables. Those are just a little bit more challenging. Actually, the moussaka is not that bad, but just a few more, few extra steps. Everything else is really simple. Like I have very simple. I love simple recipes. Uh, a few salads, hot salads, tabbouleh. We have two tabbouleh. We have a like a gluten free quinoa one, and then there's a regular traditional Arabic one. Uh, couscous soup that was fun. Hot lentil soup. Yeah. Oh, and I love Chad's Caesar dressing. I asked him for a Caesar dressing that was oil free and it's so good. It's so good. Ooh, what, is, what, what does he use for flavoring? He uses, okay, let me get to that. I just had it there. It was, well, he uses like the seaweed flakes, oh. uh, for the kind of the fishy, you know, what's it called? Because it's usually, the anchovies. um, anchovies. Exactly. Thank you. But he uses, let me see. I'm trying to find that. He's so talented. That guy. I have a breakfast salad that was fun. Where's his salad? I just had it. Oh yeah, you know, um, the, the one, I, the one I, and I don't have the book in front of me. I mentioned before we got on, uh, started recording that I, I was reading it this morning and I and I left it somewhere. So I gotta go. I gotta go yeah. back for it. But the, the first one I was gonna make was the breakfast, um, the dinner pancakes. Oh, I love those. I love those. Those are so fun to make and they're so easy and they're so good. You shred up the vegetables and I used. Um, uh, chickpea flour which i just started experimenting with but it was so hearty i love that yeah okay i'm looking I, I, I've, I've been using that for I, I saw a recipe in um ann and jane esselstyn's cookbook that was kind of a chickpea flour omelet oh oh i have to look for that i haven't had that book yet um okay so he uses the sea vegetable granules and uh a natural and then a miso paste and nutritional yeast and dijon mustard and lemon oh, and white wine vinegar and cashews is a cashew. Oh, oh it's so good. Oh, okay. That's that sounds great. Yeah. So, so I didn't I didn't want to um, end the call before talking about like a, the longest chapter in the book. I think is where you teach people how to actually take the steps they need to incorporate this whole food, plant based, vegetarian uh, diet into their lives. So I just wanted to. to um, to acknowledge that for folks that this isn't just a book of philosophy and recipes, there is a ton of nuts and bolts stuff. So one one of the things that I took away that I didn't I didn't realize is you say that um, silicon bakeware is one of the healthiest uh, types of bakeware you can get. It's a great one because, by the way, thank you for mentioning that because that is important because no matter how much information you have and how much you know why something is good, it doesn't matter unless you do it. And so I did spend a lot of time and I have a lot of tactics and techniques and tips on how to implement all of this. But um, the silicone I like because for oil-free baking, it doesn't stick, it, it, like anything could pop out of that. I learned about that from Chef AJ, but it, it works, they work, I love that stuff. It's harder to find, but um, it's worth it and they last a long time. Huh, because I, you know, I, I, I do a lot of baking and the, the bakeware that I have, it's, it's either it was like no stick before I knew that, you know, I shouldn't be using like Teflon stuff, you know, or, right. or it's disgusting. Right, <laughs> like, right. This, like, you know, 30 year old stainless steel cookie trays or, or, right. we, or we just put parchment paper on everything, which works for some things, but you know, it leaves a lot of stuff on the parchment paper. So I'm very excited to try like some of the, the muffin or cupcake recipes um, with, with some, uh, silicon bakeware 
Yeah, I mean, I, I use parchment paper, too, sometimes for my old cookie sheets because I don't have the – I have the silk pad, but instead of cleaning them, sometimes I'll just use the, the parchment. But, yeah, I think you – let us know what you think about that because I think it's really a great – it's a great tool. I love them. Yeah, and it's it's nice to uh, to know because I wasn't sure because, you know, I've seen it and it feels very sort of like floppy and plasticky. And my reaction was, oh, this can't be good for me. Right, except it's an it's inert. It's not plastic. It's an inert chemical, so it's it's safe. It doesn't leach anything into the food. That's why I like it so much. Yeah, so, and it comes in all these different shapes and sizes, so it's it's great. And literally, anything will pop out of it. It's the coolest thing ever. All right, shopping spree coming up. All right, yay! Yeah. I know I need some new ones too. Yeah, so you know, because there's there's uh, there's sometimes where I feel like. You know, the oil free community is trying to sell me on nonstick like, well, it's yeah, it's bad. It's not that bad. And I have to I have to end up deciding who I believe sort of like the, you know, the Mercola folks who who are all into like BPA and 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 chemical additives or the plant based people who are so into we should eat the right food that however we can make it easy to do, we will. Like oh, but you could totally do, but you could totally have the best of both worlds. I mean, stainless steel does really well, you know, like those pancakes you're talking about. Uh-huh. I make those on a stainless steel pot, pan or pot and it pops off. So, you know, if you have a good, it doesn't have to be the Teflon stuff. Like I'm scared of that. I, I really, I, I'm convinced on that too. I think that we, nobody should be using that stuff, but I don't think you need to, to cook oil free. I, I don't. Cool. All right. I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try the, uh, the pancakes on the, on stainless steel and let you know how it okay, goes. Okay, let me know how it goes. The other thing is I haven't found a rice cooker yet that has doesn't have the Teflon. It's hard to find everything, and ah. I don't know of a, a griddle, too. That's really hard. Miracle Pot. I'll send, oh, what? I'll send yes. you a link. I have one. It's a rice cooker oh, that's yeah. just stainless steel insert. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Good. Good yeah, to I know. Got, I got it on Amazon like 10 years ago for 50 bucks. I, I, I assume they still make it. It was the only one that was, uh, it wasn't no stick. Awesome. Oh, I'm totally going to go get one. Thank Cause, you. Because, <laughs> you know, we go over to people's houses and they would have those, you know, this beautiful uh, meal and there'd be like rice in the, in the rice cooker. And then when you get to the bottom, you see like the, the bottom of the rice cooker is like two different colors. <laughs> There's yeah. where, where the Teflons come off and where it hasn't yet. I'm like, oh. Yeah, I, I just threw out a pan like that. Too. I still am getting rid of my mind like that. It's so hard to get rid of, you know, but it's it's gross. It's so bad for you. I'm so, I've read a lot of stuff on that. It, it is bad. Right. Well, just get your kids to like cut vegetables on it and then you'll have to throw it out. Yeah, right. No, but then it's going to go into the vegetables. <laughs> throw them out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just for practice. <laughs> So, um, what are you, what what have you got coming up? Um, you've got this book out. I assume you're you're busy promoting it. What's what's up for you? Um, you know, in the next few uh, weeks and months. Well, it's a good question. I'm actually I'm doing a webinar on Sunday with Whitney Lauritsen, eco vegan gal. We're doing a how to go vegan like six hour webinar <laughs> that we're putting so much into. We're doing an ebook and all that for that. So that we're excited about that. It's um, essentialveganguide.com. And um, I'm doing, I'm going to be start teaching classes. I, I realize I need to, start, I do a lot of nutrition counseling one-on-one, but I'm ready to start kind of just teaching some small classes for people that are in Los Angeles. I'm thinking about how to best format that. I'm looking for locations and that's good. That's something that's on my radar that I'm trying to, I'm trying to implement. I wanted to do it in January because it's such a time to everyone is all motivated, but um, I just need to figure out all the details. And I've got a couple, like I've got a food 
I, I'm working for this company called Sheft, and it's a new startup like Blue Apron, where they div. Oh, you know about this? So you do. Yeah. Are you're doing one? I, so I, like, I, I, I was. I'm not involved, I'm not involved in it at the moment, but I know this space oh, very well. Oh, okay, so yeah, so it's kind of like that, but it's not all vegan. So I'm just doing I'm doing the vegan recipes for them. Like I have, I think we have three of my meal kits that'll be going out, and that's launching in March, mm-hmm. and uh, and then I'm hopefully starting this other food line thing, but that's been taking a while, so I don't know what's going on with that. And just seeing a lot of clients, this has been like my big thing, and trying to get some, you know, I've got some talks coming up, and uh, I don't know, and that's that's what's solid right now. I've got other stuff that are potentially going to happen, but I can't really talk about them yet, because I don't know yet. Gotcha. So is, is there another part of the world that you want to explore culinary-wise? Yes. What a good question. I know I'm thinking I know I need to go to Asia because why is Okinawa so successful and I just want to learn how to cook Asian food. Wow, you're, you're taking bullets for all of us. I think I might. I don't know. It's sad. I've got another idea for a book too. So I'm trying to, of course, it's so funny because the book comes out and you know, you work, you know how it is. You're working on a book. You're like, oh, I'll never do this again. This is so hard. Why am I doing doing this? It's like giving birth and then you give birth and it's like, oh, what, what am I going to do next? Yeah. You know, like you can't wait to do the next. It's like having kids. Except, so. except once you've given birth to a book, you don't have to get up at night for it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It might be more intense than labor. Well, I don't know if it's more intense, but it, yeah, it's it's once it's out, it's out. So yeah, so I'm trying to figure out the next book, but it's kind of nice to not be writing right now. I'm writing all these little articles here and there, so it's not like I'm not writing, but mm-hmm. um, but you know, a book is a huge to do, and I'm really excited about this one because really, this is this is the first time I ever got personal. You know, I talk about why I'm vegan and. And, and I get to interview like the world's leading experts on all the wonderful ethical parts like Melanie Joy talking about carnism and Richard Openlander talking about the environmental implications and Gene Bauer and factory farming like that chapter. I don't know, Howard, I'm sure you've had these experiences, but this was like the first time where I had experienced what I've learned. I've heard about that myth called flow. When you have writer's flow, I had this one, one, that one chapter three where I started typing and I just couldn't type fast enough and I'm crying and my heart is pouring onto the page and it was the most exciting experience of writing I've ever had in my life. So this this book I'm excited about, I feel like I really did put my heart and soul in it and I'm very excited to get it out there. And so thank you for, for sharing it with your audience. Yeah, well, so I will, I will say that you know, I'm, I'm quite a literary snob. And I love that your book is really well written. It's 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 just oh, it's, it's, it's well written. It's it's not just good information. It's not just oh you know you have a happy personality, but it's 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 literary. And on top of that, it's got great information, and and your great personality comes across in it. But it's just it's it's easy to read. Um, and oh, you and, just totally made me happy. Thank you. What an <laughs> honor comes from you. Thank you. And, and, you know, it's it's funny that you say like this is this is the book in which you kind of, you know, shared your soul. Um, there's 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 something, you know, really profound to at a certain point, and I guess, in a writer's career where they stop trying to be commercial or be strategic and they just let it all hang out. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like all like this is who I am, you know, deal with it. Yes. You know what? That's exactly what I was doing. And it was so scary. And I mean, it feels very raw and naked and vulnerable to do that. Like I was a little scared to put it out there. And, you know, especially because, 
I mean, as a dietitian, you know, people don't want to hear about the other reasons and the, the ethical things. And I, I was, but it's so, it means so much to me that I'm like, you know what, it's part of it. It all goes together and here's why. So it does feel very naked. And, um, but here it is, here I am. <laughs> Take right. me or leave me. <laughs> well, I think and there's, there's something very transparent about doing that, that I, that I really appreciate. Um, you know, I'm, I'm personally I'm not an ethical vegan. I eat like one, but in turn, you know, philosophically, I'm, I'm not, I don't toe the party line. So, so I'm very sensitive to when people are, um, in, are in danger of, or perceived of, or may actually be, um, subjugating their research agenda to a vegan agenda. Like, like, like when you said at the beginning, you went to see if olive oil was healthy. You didn't go in looking to prove that olive oil was or wasn't. Um, and I don't think there's, there's nothing wrong with having a vegan agenda. But I, I see it sometimes as, um, I would say, not, not stated up front. And, and so, you know, as if the person could have come to any other conclusion. And so I, I actually find it very disarming and and you know it's it's easy to engage with you because this is where you're coming from and at the same time you're not um you know by knowing that you're you're not letting it uh blinder you to research you're you're looking at the research looking for the truth not looking to justify a philosophy right wow yeah thank you for saying that exactly and i want i want to be in integrity with everything that i say i don't want to say anything in an exaggerated way. I'm very careful about that on social media too, because for that very reason, like I don't, I, I, I don't want to, I want, it's not, it's only going to hurt what I believe in. I, it's only going to hurt the vegan movement to, to compromise the integrity by saying something that's false, you know, or misleading. And I really, and I, and I, so I, it's, it's a very interesting um, wire to walk because you do have the bias, but you also really want to be in integrity, scientifically speaking. So it is, it is very interesting. Right. And, you know, and, and to be, um, exaggerating or, um, you know, cherry picking, it, it implies weakness, right? It implies that you're not really confident that the rest of the, you know, the data is, is making your case. Like if, if plant-based people should be really relaxed, like we, <laughs> You know, just when you when you look at the preponderance of every different kind of data versus you right. know, paleo or Atkins or standard American, there's really, you know, there's there's no contest. And yet we're, we're all like up in arms and nervous about things. Like, well, because everyone expects us to prove it to a different level, I think because of what you implied, because of this um, perceived bias. So people are like, yeah, right. Prove it, because it's also not the standard way of us of us being taught. And it's also not the way. Um, you know, the, the nutrition community is, is I mean, the USDA is sponsored. It's all sponsored. So that, that's what we're taught. So, if, you know, we need to, we're always constantly feeling like we have to defend our views because it's not commonplace. So that's another kind of huge element that people need to consider that you're right. The evidence is there. And that's what I wanted to show in this book, that the evidence is there. It was there. It's there in the Mediterranean. It's there in all the cardiovascular studies that we've seen from the fifties and sixties and seventies. And now up till now, and we really do have that evidence. And it's wonderful because for me, all of my values that I initially were so passionate about as a kid, but didn't understand and was scared that it wasn't healthy, it all beautifully symbiotically came together. And I like to call it like a, 
a symbiotic trifecta where it is best for the animals, it is best for the environment, and it is also best for us. And I love that. I, I just think that that means it's such a like a universal truth because it's best for all. And and I love that it, it, we have this evidence that's growing. And I, I wanted to document that very cautiously in this book to add that that scientific basis for it. Well, you do you do a beautiful job, and you know, know knowing the science the way you do, um, it comes across very clearly that you really respect research and you respect researchers and you respect truth in all its forms. And so, there's, you know, I, I didn't get the feeling like you were cherry picking or you were, you know, purposefully, you know, averting your eyes from from alternate types of evidence. You you do provide evidence that counters some of the things you say. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. So, so that's to me, that's very trustworthy. That's a, that's a um, an approach that welcomes me in uh, as opposed to, you know, turning me into a, a zealot. Right. Oh, thank you, Howard. I'm so grateful to hear that. Thank you. I know. I remember when I gave the book to Dr. Campbell and I was like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, here we go. <laughs> I was because I have such he's like my hero and um and he loved it and I was so happy like it just that was like after that I felt like I could I literally put the book down I'm like okay I'm done I could do I could now I could be out there and because he's so critical and scientific and so he's so analytical and he knows his research so well that I feel like if I could get him to to agree and it was it was on board then I felt like I was I was that was like okay <laughs> I was so happy the ultimate editor the ultimate editor, exactly. Okay. So, no, and I know peer review is important because it's not, it's a commercial book. It's not going into a journal, but I wanted it to be scientifically as accurate as possible. So I did put it through a severe peer review. And I was, you know, I went through a few people, Dr. Greger and Brenda Davis and Dr. K, like everyone. So um, that, that are really science oriented and know all of the research behind this. And uh, I want this. So this book is peer reviewed in that kind of sense. I mean, it's not a technical journal, but. I wanted it to be close to that. Right. So all the stuff that uh, your your editors didn't let you put in because it was boring. Are you, is that available on your blog? Is that does that ex exist in a public format in any way? Maybe I should. I should. There was so much of that science that I was. I had to fight. I'm like, please, please, please. I have to keep this. We have to keep this. I should go back and look at the earlier edits and see. I would have to go kind of pick it out because it's been extracted through different, you know, yeah. uh, stations. But. That's a good idea. Yeah, make a make a, a director's cut of the books. You know, nine hundred pages. You could press tofu with it. <laughs> okay, I love it for for people that like to geek out on nutrition like me. I'll, I should I should do that. It's a good idea. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so for uh, for people who are meeting you for the first time in this interview, how can they stay in touch with you? Oh, great. Okay. Please find me on my website is plantbaseddietitian.com. And I'm very active and I answer all the messages I get on Facebook on plant based dietitian, my plant based dietitian page, and on Twitter as plant dietitian. And anywhere you could find me, uh, I try to respond to absolutely everything. And if I don't, then write again because sometimes I miss things. But um, I'm happy to, I want to support people. I, you know, my day job is counseling and I love helping people one on one. And I'm going to start teaching all these classes because I really just want people to see how easy this is. And it's it's changed my life. I've seen it change personally. I've seen hundreds of people's lives change. And I just I hope that it will. I hope to help anyone else that's that's interested and open minded. 
Right on. Right well, on. You know, so for going going from someone who uh, who honed her craft playing Ju- Juliet, you know, a, a a teenage a teenage girl who died from what she put in her mouth to uh, right. to an adult who saves people. It's a uh, it's quite a journey. Oh, when you put it like that, that's hilarious. <laughs> I love it. So Juliana, thank you so much for, for uh, agreeing to be on the podcast a second time. And the book is called The Vegetarian Diet. It's available everywhere books are sold. I highly recommend it. And uh, I wish you only good things in the in the future. And I can't wait to uh, read about your Okinawa book. <laughs> thank you so much, Howard. You're the best. All right, be well. <laughs> you too. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Juliana Hever, the plant-based dietitian, author of The Vegetarian Diet. You can get that book wherever fine books are sold. Upcoming podcasts include next week, Anne Bradney, the founder of Radical Aliveness Institute, talking about radical aliveness and how we can achieve such a thing. And for the two weeks following, we're going to be talking to folks about fitness, about exercise physiology. Uh, Martin Gibala, who is one of the premier researchers on HIIT, high-intensity interval training, and he'll be talking about his latest findings, including the fact that we may need a lot less exercise than we thought for a lot of health benefits if we just do it right. Following that is Lanny Mulrath, who will be making her second appearance on the Plant Yourself podcast, talking about how exercise is often the missing piece in comprehensive lifestyle change. So stay tuned for those two. If you're enjoying the podcast, the best thing you can do to help me out is tell all your friends, share the links, and leave a review on iTunes so that other people can find out about it and the mission can continue. Thanks very much and be well, my friends.